Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Dan Hill. Dan is, well, many things, a designer, urbanist, educator, and experienced leader who has worked across multiple industries and sectors for the past 30 years. In particular, he's found his sweet spot working at the intersection of design, technology, and cities. In April, Dan became the director of the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne, Australia. There, he's working to elevate the graduate educational experience through a holistic approach to interdisciplinary design practices and learning. Dan has also held roles as a professor at the Oslo School of Architecture and Design, visiting professor of practice at UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, visiting professor at Design Academy Eindhoven, and adjunct professor at RMIT University. Prior to joining the Melbourne School of Design, Dan was the director of strategic design at Renova, the Swedish government's innovation agency. He has also previously been an associate director and head of Arup Digital Studio at Arup in London, CEO of Fabrica in Italy, a strategic design lead at Citra, Finland's government's innovation fund, and the head of interactive technology and design at the BBC. Dan has developed and delivered city strategy and urban development projects for local governments in Amsterdam, Melbourne, Stockholm, Manchester, Sydney, and London, as well as for Google's parent company, Alphabet and Lendlease. He was one of the Mayor of London's Sadiq Khan's inaugural design advocates. He has been a trustee of the Participatory City Foundation and is a founding member of the UN Habitat Council for Urban Initiatives. Dan is the author of the influential book, Dark Matter and Trojan Horses, a strategic design vocabulary, and is a prolific blogger who has been writing about design, technology, cities, and culture for over 20 years. Definitely check out his blog. It's called City of Sound, and you can find it on Medium. Honestly, I could go on. Dan has done plenty of amazing things, but it will be much better if I don't and we find out about them from him directly. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, sorry, my CV takes like half an hour to get through. Um, I suppose it took about 30 years for me to get through it. So, Yeah, I feel like yeah. I've got the better end of that bargain, to be fair. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Dan, I really enjoyed preparing for today. I watched a number of your previous talks and read some of the things that you've written. And I did notice a couple of times you referred to football. And I just want to clarify for our American audience that when we speak about football, we're talking about what they refer to as soccer. Yes. Just how large a football fan are you? Pretty big, I would say, in the I'm a Liverpool fan, for what it's mm. worth. And I probably think about them every 20 minutes, <laughs> I would say. But then, uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan that can go to games anymore because I live on mm. the other side of the world. Other than that, yeah, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check the football news, read the, you know, the Liverpool football website this morning you know the players just returned to training for the start of the new season yesterday so yeah why <laughs> why someone like me would would waste their time watching photos of 20 year old you know grown men doing training over the other side of the world it's not even a game you know it's just like running through running up and down in straight lines having with electro to attach to them so yeah <laughs> well, some things just can't be explained that's how much of a fan i am <laughs> i do that right. kind of thing <laughs> so if you're missing the subtlety of that, people, uh, Dan's an incredibly large fan of Liverpool. Am I, am I right or am I wrong that they're referred to as the Scousers? Is that... Scousers is what you call people from Liverpool generally, or rather what they would ah, call okay. themselves. Right. So right. I, don't know where, I don't know where that comes from. But yeah, it's kind of um, mm. that's an old term for any any kind of Liverpoolian. But yeah, Liverpool are the, one of the two big teams in Liverpool and obviously the biggest, I would say. But yes, for our American friends, it's... We're talking about the world game here. We're talking about the, the one that <laughs> uh, most countries spend a lot of time obsessing about. Tell me what Even was New it Zealand that? a little bit. 
Right. Well, you know, we we try. I don't I don't know if we actually qualified for the World Cup this time round, or maybe even last time round. But we we give it our best. We give it our best. Yeah. What was it that got you interested in football? Oh, I mean, I grew up in a fairly sporty household. I suppose my mum was a tennis coach professionally. My dad was a teacher, but was also a qualified coach. I think in football, tennis, and cricket. So we were just sort of, you know, I was surrounded by balls of various sizes, like littering around your feet from a very early age. So I was playing a lot. And then, you know, at the age of seven or eight, then you start noticing you can also support it and get into it, just like kids get into any kind of hobby. But yeah, and I was, I was you know, I was okay as a footballer as well. So I, I, was, I think I was playing and regularly, you know, in either a five-a-side or something up until about, let's say, five years ago when my knees finally gave out, not being a professional and being a man of a certain age. So yes, I find it, I find it immensely interesting. And then I, I do I do write about it a bit. I read about it um, because going beyond my the sort of silly everydayness of being a football fan, as a thing itself, I find it like an interesting way of thinking about the world. I think interesting. it's interesting from a design point of view. It's definitely interesting from a management and leadership point of view because if you think about it, you're... Football, managing a football team is a bit like designing a, um, an out-of-control system. As in, no matter how much practice you do, and of course they practice excellent, you know, most of the day for all of their lives, no matter, you're still at the vagaries of chance, depends what the other team do, you know, it depends what the weather is. <laughs> you know, there's so many impossible out-of-control elements that it, it, you, you have this really interesting interplay between something you can prepare for and have a strategy about and design for and create conditions for. And if you do those things really well, of course, you're increasing your chance of success. But at the same time, the game is so delicately balanced as a, as a sort of design in itself that you can't control it. So I find it very useful for thinking about systems generally, which I think Danella Dan Meadows said, you know, you can't control systems. You can, you can influence them. And you always are influencing them, right, by virtue of whatever actions you're taking. But, but I think, it, yeah, I think it's very interesting and in like how you can think in those ways. And then as a manager, of course, you're then thinking about, I need a diverse set of skills in the team. I can't just have, you know, 11 strikers. That would be a terrible team. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you're talking about the different balance and the diversity that, that people bring to a collective act. So, yeah, there's a lot in there, I think. Many layers a, as well, right? Because you've got you've got yeah. layers. You've got the on on the on the field, the game day layer. You know, I suppose that's the operational layer. The constraints are pretty clear. You know, you have however many people eleven aside, unless you know someone gets yeah. a card. You've yeah. got ninety minutes to play, unless there's a bit yeah. of extra time. You know, so exactly. you've got you know, and you know who's won or lost at the end of it or drawn. Exactly. Uh, but then, like you say, you've got the manager that's really dealing with that next layer of complexity. Uh, but that's you have these clear feedback loops right like you mm. you know you know whether you've done well or not done well totally and and, and of course now you know any any professional team like a, a high level like the premiership or the bundesliga in germany those players are the amount of data analytics going on is nuts i mean there's just machine vision all over them every single movement on the pitch they're wearing sensors during training non-stop you know and so you can also talk about data-driven operations and all of those things, but quite literally. And yet, at the same time, it's a game that also makes room for kind of art and improvisation. You know, so very, very structured and very systematic and very data-led. And then, if you think about the best players in the world, whether it's Leo Messi or Mo Salah, you know, those are people that do things that are completely unpredictable, and that's how they succeed. So that's really instructive, I think, this balance between what you can control or take care of, perhaps it might be a better way of thinking about it, and then leading room for unpredictability. And then the whole thing itself is also like a cultural act. And that, that's also interesting in my work as well. I'm usually trying to find things that are that are not, let's just say, operational logistic operations with a you know very clear financial bottom line. And you know, you can, your feedback loop is did we make a profit or a loss? And it's based on very quant data about sales or widgets or whatever. But actually trying to find things that have other kinds of value that resist that easy kind of quantification. So I think that's really interesting because you can see people when they struggle to kind of govern football or think about it as a, as a business, it doesn't capture what's going on there. It doesn't capture why people care about it, right? And that doesn't quantify to a price mechanism in the same way, you know? And so it's really, um, you can see authorities all over the world struggling with this one. How do we? Do we, do we let this club fail because it failed as a business? Well, you can't because it's just like the soul of the town and it's been that way for 120 years. So someone will always find a way to resurrect it or, you know, because it's just much deeper than a business, actually. 
So I find that interesting in terms of both and my work around, say, libraries or museums or more recently, like streets. You know, how do you value these things that are kind of shared and public and civic and full of life? And they resist that kind of easy quantification saying a street is just for traffic or a library. A library is failing if it doesn't get the number of people that need to the door. And that's just not true. It depends what's going on in there. It depends how, what kind of value is being generated. It's a much wider conversation. So it's kind of almost so kind of useful in that sense as well. This has taken an unexpected turn, but a good one. <laughs> I, I feel like football it could have gone anywhere and it's gone to some really interesting territory. Thinking about that, thinking about our emphasis or overemphasis on the financial aspects of decision making, you know, that affects everything in the private side of things and the private enterprise all the way through now to our public institutions. Mm. Has this lens always been the lens that we have applied to deciding whether or not to do something? In the civic uh, space, no, I should clarify. It's got it's got more it's got more intense absolutely in the last thirty or forty years. I, I think that's probably beyond doubt. People would call that a kind of a financialization, you know, like a understanding that the finance aspect dominates our decision making, dominates the way we think about stuff. And you know, I'm sitting in universities. Universities have been subject to those pressures as much as anywhere else. And you could kind of say, well, it would be you know, we could run Melbourne Uni just by picking the students that will pay the most fees. <laughs> if you were a you know, if you're a business, a pure business, you might well do that. But you know, you 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 probably understand that that wouldn't be a good thing to do as a public institution like a university. We also should have a responsibility for equitable access to help people that don't have, you know, the advantage of growing up in a certain background, that they should also be able to go to university if they're, you know, if they're smart, if they work or they have an opportunity or something to contribute. So so we have to pull off these balancing acts in things like civic institutions or, you know, public spaces are the same. I would I'd argue increasingly a huge number of things we understand are the same as that, where you're on one level, you can run it as a business. So obviously, university does have cash flow, does have revenue, you know, does have operational needs and so on. But you also have to pull out of that magical formula things that are well outside of what, if I was just being a purely market-oriented, financialized thinker, you know, you'd say, well, I'm not interested in those people because they can't pay. And I'm interested in these students because they can pay double what these ones can pay. And that, in the end, that would, of course, not be a smart thing to do from a university point of view, generally, even as a business. It would be, um, Why not? Tell, tell me about that. Why well, not? because the reputation of the university is um, part of its standing in the community as well. And so you'd understand, okay, well, that university has just gone down the road. I mean, it's pretty clear that you'd have gone down the road of just running effectively as a business. But we actually, you know, if we think about how do we value universities, then partly it is what is it doing in the city and the community and, you know, can my kids go to it, things like that, non-quantifiable things. And then partly it's the quality of the research or the quality of the teaching. You know? So those are things that are unrelated, actually, to whether you're just picking the students can happen to pay the most. So, yes, I think so in the end, that would bite you on the butt, you know, because it'd be pretty clear that your university had gone down that road because it's a public entity. It's not just like a business that can kind of do what it's like. And I'd argue increasingly, it's just, again, we've understood the limits of that way of thinking, that purely financial valuing, probably since about, uh, let's just pick 1979, because that's when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan came to power. But it's since then, there's been that kind of creeping movement across things and so you saw things in the uk for instance libraries were being closed down throughout the early 2000s mid you know 2010 2020 fairly rapidly and the argument was that they're not really cost effective in an age of the internet you know because if you saw this very reductive view of what a library was as a place you'd go to find out something you know so if it was just like a place you look information at then of course the internet does that really well, and Wikipedia will give you an answer, right or wrong, but mainly pretty good, actually. And so the lazy way of thinking about libraries would be, oh, okay, the internet's come along, we don't need to have those expensive libraries anymore. And that's pretty much what the UK government got to, because it was part of a grander narrative from their point of view about austerity and financialization. It completely ignored that libraries all over the world during that time period were doubling the numbers of people going in, massively increasing numbers. And so what started happening in the UK was that this kind of attack on libraries didn't really come from a data-driven point of view, actually. It started from this position of they don't seem right right now, and we, we need austerity. So let's start closing their opening hours and 
not have them open at the weekend and stuff like that. And then they then they started looking at the numbers, going, "Oh, fewer people are going to libraries." And it's like, "Well, because you close the door at three p.m." You know, it's sort of, mm. of course, they can't get in. Literally. <laughs> Whereas, mm. you know, I was working on the State Library of Queensland at the time, and we were we were seeing you know numbers double, 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 double because libraries were. Yes, they were dealing with knowledge and information, but they were doing that as a public space in numerous ways across exhibitions and just workspaces, as well as archives, as well as precious books, you know, as well as cinemas and coffee shops, like the whole thing as a public space and a civic space to generate knowledge in, as well as, you know, librarians shifting their role to becoming, capturing the memory of Queensland and working that through into exhibitions and so on. So all of that stuff meant that library numbers were going up and up and up and up. And, and that was, that means you have to then think about their value in a much broader sense. Some of that stuff, definitely, you can put a price tag on, but some of it you can't. And I think it was Robert Kennedy said, you know, like about GDP, he said GDP captures everything except that which is important. <laughs> and so we know for and Bruce said that in the late 60s, right? So we know for a long time that the reasons we do things are actually probably cultural or like, why do I like football? It's, or, you know, it's why do I play football with my kids or why do I write? You know, they're not actually things that make me any money at all. So it's well outside of traditional economic thinking. But that's the thing that drives most people. Why do you start cooking? Why do you run a podcast? You know, it might come back in some way to the business at some point. But actually, of course, it's just seemed like this is my contribution I can make. And that's a really meaningful thing to do in its own terms. So we know that deep down. It's just that the way that we've run national governments in particular for the last 30, 40 years, and that which sets the frame for the way we think about the economy. And that's been, of course, reinforced in the media and various other things has been this very financial reductive thing, which has been really, really damaging, I think. So and I think we're just coming to the end of that time, actually, because it doesn't capture the issues around climate or social justice. You know, you can't, you can't dig your way out of those holes just with better financial metrics. It's not going to work. So we need some other ways of thinking and acting. Listening to you talk about the the changes that happened from the 70s onwards and the challenges, I suppose, for designing for the urban environment to ensure that public and civic spaces have a role to play in the way in which we, we build our cities and things that will come to soon, particularly around your views around policy formulation, energy consumption and local transportation. Yeah. There seems to be a, a distinct anti-establishment, perhaps even anti-capitalist tone or disdain that comes through. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, it's not anti-establishment in the sense, well, it depends if it's a capital E establishment. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it would be, for instance, I'm a, I'm, I, I work in institutions actually a lot of my life. You know, I've, I've worked in the private sector as well, as you know, probably half my life, or at least half of my working life has been in, well, now I'm at a university. Previously, it was the Swedish government. You know, those are, those are pretty institutional places. So, and I believe in them actually. And so I want, I want government to be more meaningful, not less. I want it to be more useful, not less. I want it to be more engaged and participative. And that, that's why as a designer, I engage with it because I, I believe in the idea of government. I just, I think the way that we've enacted it, perhaps in the last 40 years again, but no doubt before that as well, uh, has been problematic often. So. I'm not trying to destroy or tear it down at all. I'm trying to sort of rebuild it from within, I suppose. That's for, you know, me and many, many, many others like me. And that can be very humble, just frontline sort of um, service improvement stuff, or it can be, you know, deeper about what is the role of government and citizens and how do we, how do they work together so a citizen can genuinely meaningful shape their life and their environment and be an actor within that and really engaged and participative. And at the same time, government still exists to do what individuals can't do, which is a lot which makes things fair and equal and so on and so on. So I, I generally believe in that, and then, I, then that's why I'm interested in working there. So I don't think that's anti-establishment. If, any, if anything, it's, well, I mean, I, I, like I said, maybe it is if we say, like in the British context, the establishment is people that went to Eton and happened to end up as prime minister, like the current one. <laughs> but I'm certainly anti that because that is not based around fairness and equity, and in no way is it making that kind of participative future that I'm imagining for government. Yeah, it's the exact opposite. But institutions, I think, have a lot of value. You know, that's, that's again, why we designed them in the first place or invented them. Capitalism isn't uh, something I'm against either, necessarily. It, just, it depends on how you do it. It's like a, you know, it's, it, it, and there's a transition 
from where to where it goes next. That's what I'm interested in. Now, whether that transition, partly because the, the thing there, I suppose, is capitalism is all around us. So it's a bit like oxygen. You know, I can't be against oxygen, right? So, and of course, it brings huge value into the world as well as a mechanism. So, what I'm interested in is then, you know, because I'm talking to you on a MacBook Pro, right? So that wouldn't exist without capitalism. So, but what I'm interested in is what are the limits of that thinking? And it's a bit like the, my, our previous conversation about the library. There's a there's a hard limit to how far the kind of processes that build a MacBook Pro or or Uber say. They have a limit to when it comes to them trying to produce those kind of wider civic or social outcomes or environmental outcomes. So now could capitalism kind of get you through those other ones as well? Maybe. I don't know. But either way, my starting point is it is where we are. So our transition has to be then forward into that so that we start looking at not just the MacBook Pro end of the problem. Sorry if you've that audio. Or the the Uber end, you know, like the Uber interface end of the problem, but the wider impact of Uber on the city, the environment, you know, that's also part of the design challenge from my point of view. So maybe this gets into a, you know, the second the question you hinted at. So sorry if I'm kind of jumping ahead, but no, don't be sorry. From, from a good. UX point of view, which is my background originally, you know, Uber in the in the interaction design sense, I, I could say this about Airbnb, by the way, or. Amazon, I believe, you know, so I'm just using Uber as an example. But from an interaction, maybe a service design point of view is pretty bloody good. Right? You know, it's technically well done. There's about 800 designers there in California. They've done a good job. <laughs> it works. And it's pretty fluid and seamless. And We know that's partly why the whole venture works, because the internet enables a kind of set of interactions there that are overlaid onto something like a taxi. Let's, let's just call it a taxi. That internet plus taxi equals Uber. Well, internet plus taxi plus lawyers actually equals Uber. <laughs> so, and that's pretty good at that end of the triangle. But the other end of this triangle here is when we when we scale that up and say, but what's the impact of Uber on the city? Well, or Lyft or Airbnb, it increases congestion. It doesn't decrease it. And you remember the early days of Uber, I guess, when it was like, we're going to, reduce traffic because people are sharing cars. You know, it's going to get cars off the road. And of course, the exact opposite happens because the dynamics built into the system that are so good at the interaction design end, at the wider sort of urban design end, they're really problematic. You know, like 50% more traffic in San Francisco that researchers found. And that's what I'm saying was the kind of the the hard limits. Now, it's sort of, whether well, it's capitalism or not, it's, it's sort of neither here nor there, but it's from a design point of view, I'm saying all of those things are connected and we have responsibility to understand that the decisions we're making at the interaction design end, you know, the very focused end, the pointy end, if you like, they scale up and they because systems are connected. They have a they have a ripple effect right through. And it's and what's good at this end of that diagram is turns out to be bad at the other end. How do we do that? <laughs> and that's that's what I'm trying to move us towards, where we understand we have a, a way of designing and working up and down those scales and a set of responsibilities there as well. And that would be what that looks like. That's really interesting for us to move towards. Whether it's capitalism, or not, another another question, but not really one. I'm, I mean, ask an economist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and these terms like capitalism are, are really easy to throw out there, like I just did, and and particularly easy to oversimplify. And you talked about taking a systems approach or a systems thinking approach to understanding problems and you've definitely been working at problems that are at a significant scale through cities right these are not uh, simple systems so I, I sometimes wonder how much of and maybe this is an unanswerable question but how much responsibility can designers who work within the private sector bear for the outcomes of their decisions based on the perspective at which and the and perhaps the the level at which they're operating you know mm. are these are these outcomes self-evident in advance, or are are there other mechanisms in our culture and our society that should be, you know, keeping a watchful eye, mm. or at least monitoring the temperature of the room, so to speak, so that when things get a little bit too hot, we have the ability to turn it down a little. Yeah, I think it's probably the second thing you're alluding to there, as opposed to the first one. If we said the first one would be, you know, I hold the graphic designer responsible for then the increase in traffic in San Francisco, or the or the interaction designer that figured out the user flow through the sign-up process that then got used by, you know, like used got by Uber's coders to then build the app around. It's like those are probably 
too many steps removed to hold everybody accountable in that way. It wouldn't be helpful, I don't think. It's a bit like, you know, blaming a typeface designer for what people then write. <laughs> so, yeah. oh, and I, it's I a long it's, bow. It's a long bow, exactly. And also, you want the type that, you know, you want Chris Sowersby, one of your brethren there in New Zealand, an amazing typeface designer. I want him to focus on making fantastic type and doing the research that he does about you know, 17th century typeforms and things like that. And so, that's great. I think what the second thing that is the is what you're alluding to is that, as you said, you put it quite nicely. That like he's watching the temperature of that system when it starts to boil, or you know something gets out of kilter, or you can actually then see, oh, there is a connection between that and that. Who knew? You know. So, so that's where I'd say you need that. I would say there's a design intelligence you need up and down the chain there, and that's where we've kind of created artificial boundaries around things and said designers do this end of the problem. You know, we're sort of almost actually re- reducing them down to the problem-solving bit. And yeah, I'm, to I'm, hands, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, hands divorced from the brain. Exactly. And it, and it's a bit like engineers are really good at that, by the way. You know, like they're pretty good at like working in, at that level and also figuring out a lot of the second-order issues and so on. But what designers are supposed to do, I think, is also ask questions, not just, you know, look at pro- solving problems and Problem solving isn't unique to designing at all. In fact, we're probably not very good at it, to be honest, because I think designers are probably better at kind of um, creating problems or at least finding opportunities or like, you know, or it could also be like this, you know, or it could be like this. You know, that's the that's the instinct of the designer almost, whereas the engineer is like, I oh, forget about that. This is the best way to do it. We're going to make this one really work. and It's going to do it really well. I'm going to go in a room and figure it out. So. So I, I think there's two very different characters there. And it's not just engineers do problem solving. My friend Jack Schultz said, you know, like dentists do problem solving. You know, plumbers solve problems. They're real problem solvers. <laughs> Designers don't you, do you, that. We think we've got a monopoly on it, right? No, we I, seem think, to, we seem to I don't think we're anything to, to do with it. I mean, I think we are involved in that process, obviously. We can find ways mm. through it and it helps. Well, all of human endeavor, this is generalizing here yeah. grossly, all of human endeavor has been the quest to solve problems problems and many of them sometimes with greater success than others see i think that's a generalization too far (laughs) which you did say when you said it so to be fair but i think i really think actually you know what designers are doing is more like cultural invention you know coming up with new things right which isn't problem solving actually you know if you wanted to say that's that that's it's kind of a cultural imagination act actually and so it's where i really I don't buy Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I know, you know, sort of stuck around for a lot longer than I have, so I'm going to be respectful of it. But it's it's not like we organize, okay, first I've got to get some food, then I've got to get some shelter, as if it's like some Bear grills survival nonsense. You know, it's just not like that, actually, because he's making a bloody TV show, actually. That's what he's doing. So he's making culture and then pretending it's about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this kind of shows it's the wrong way around. I've never thought of this Bear grills analogy, so it might not work. Bear with me. Came to me. No pun intended. But it's just (laughs) exactly. It was. It's more like people have been producing art from day one, whatever you think day one is. And in the indigenous Australian sense, that was of course spiritual and cultural acts linked exactly at the same time to creating food and environment and shelter simultaneously as the same thing. And so it's only a very Western thing to separate those things out and say, okay, first we do shelter and architecture is about shelter. And then we're going to do like our culture and culture is about opera. And it's like, that's just nonsense. Much longer tradition of just doing them all simultaneously at the same time. Same in New Zealand, obviously, and around the world. And I, and I think that's, you can see that in cave paintings. You know, why are people spending the time doing cave paintings? Beautiful works of art. Also survival guides. You know, also something to do whilst they were, you know, living in a cave. It's like they're not. It's not like they figured out electricity and plumbing, and then now we'll do some painting. You know, it's just sort of. It's been a continuous process all the way through invention and problem solving, invention and problem solving, and it's a bit like with the library. Again, if you're going back to what I started, if you see the problem with the library, it's just a place to get books. Clearly done. But if you see the possibility of the library as a place to create culture then it has a value in the world, in our towns, in our cities, and so on. And it is also digital, of course, like you know, physical and digital at the same time. So it's, both of those things are kind of happening simultaneously there. And I think that's that goes back to what we've been talking about, I suppose. And it, from then from a design point of view, trying to hook it back into this kind of conversation about Uber, what it means is when we're looking at the world in that way, we're, we are looking at problems, but we're not just like whack a mole our way through them and going, okay, 
now Uber's increasing traffic. Okay, what's the answer? You know, it's sort of uh, change the algorithm, but you know, like, oh, it's still going to increase traffic because we want people to get, actually get into the vehicle. So, oh yeah, how's that going to work? <laughs> like, you, you can't do it. You have to step back out of that and then say, okay, there's something else around it which is interesting, and there's something around that. And then it hits public transport at some point. You say, okay, well, from a city point of view, as a designer, I'm going to look at the city's transport, and it's got public transport, it's got private transport, it's got Uber in it, it's got taxis, it's got it's got bikes, it's got cargo bikes, it's got e-bikes, it's got walking, it's got wheelchairs, you know, up and down the scale. And our job there is to make that system work. I don't think Uber actually should try and solve that because at that point, that is getting into the bigger than the sum of the parts publicness of the city, the way the city works as a thing. And that's in a in a democracy, where I'm in Melbourne, for instance, is a democracy. Then that's a kind of a civic responsibility. Again, that's why we invented government to look after the things that can't just be done by individuals or or small businesses or startups. There's something much wider there. And public transport doesn't stack up if you try and run it as a business, except maybe in Japan. But Japan's a special case in almost all circumstances. But it, even then, it's like a public-private entity. Yeah, we know from an urban planning or an urbanism point of view, public transport is absolutely essential to making a, any city work. So it's outside of market mechanisms, fundamentally important. It means that Uber can't really do it or shouldn't really do it. They can do a bit of the transport spectrum, and you need to look at those ripple effects either side of it, and they could have value there for sure, I guess. They fix a lot of other problems. You don't sound very convinced. Well, you know, like (laughs) once you say Uber, there's like, okay, and then there's the racism and the sexism and safety issues, you know, like they're not paying drivers properly and people falling asleep at the wheel. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot of issues with it, the way that they run it under those conditions. But the idea of sharing rides or making a better UX around taxes, of course, UX around taxes used to be horrible. And they've done an amazing job saying, well, of course I should be able to see where it is on a map and coming towards me and then call them and pay seamlessly. Like, oh, that's great. Thank you, Uber, for doing that stuff. It's just, then you get into like, you know, some cities in the world when Uber came along, I think Seoul and South Korea, they saw that and thought, oh, well, we'll just do that as part of the public taxi service. Of course, you should have a good UX. Not hard. 20 people in a room, you know, <laughs> like we know, you, you, Brendan, you could do that perfectly well, no doubt. So, but... There's nothing technically that says that has to be run as a starter versus a chunk of government. You know, it's like it's they've both got the same conditions around the UX. So to me, there's the, that's the designer's role up and down the chain. And that's when it starts moving into areas of policymaking or wider responsibility. And you need to be able to kind of move. You need to understand Uber. Ideally, you need to understand like the dynamics, the interaction design, the UX, why that's so important, so that you can then draw that up into public transport and so on and see the connections between them. Sorry, these are long answers, but these are like, um, you did start talking about capitalism and <laughs> some pretty big ideas. Oh, I've, started bit, I've started to burn down the house with that question, all, haven't I? All, all, that's, all that, that, that provocation. problem solving, you said. So I, I had to take some <laughs> time just to unpick that carefully. <laughs> I might throw a few. I, I might throw a few more of those at you uh, before we're done. So we'll see how we go. And there, there was a lot in there, and you talk. You talked about seeing the possibility of the library, and you talked about framing. You also talked about which is tightly related to the questions that we we ask of the problems that we're trying to solve and and how we're approaching those problems. So it, it sounded also that there was some caution in there about the role at which we should allow corporations to play in our culture, particularly when that role starts to cross over to the public sphere. Mm -hmm. And you've also, in a couple of your talks that I've watched in the past, you've quoted Cedric Price's provocation. Mm -hmm. Now, Cedric Price was a British architect Mm -hmm. from 1966, and he said, technology is the answer, but what was the question? Mm What was he really encouraging us to think deeply about? I think it's a little, uh, well, I never quite knew Cedric because he was an eccentric character. But I, <laughs> he said things a bit like other, other people I found interesting that are kind of open and generative. So the way I take what he said was, I think that he would have been looking at the time around a lot of, in Britain it was called, Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, called it the white heat of technology in the 60s. You had the motor car coming in big time. You know, that had been around for about 30 years, but that's when it really, really started. Obviously, people started taking cities apart and reshaping it fundamentally around the car as they did in Auckland and Melbourne and numerous other places. And 
and you could also see it in construction technology. You could see it in communications technology and mainstream TV becoming to be a thing in the mid sixties, you know, sort of really properly. So, so he would have been as I am now with sort of big tech, I suppose, what we now currently call big tech, just saying, well, technology is the answer because everything humans have made more or less is technology. <laughs> It's, you know, the tools that we produce in order to say, I would argue again, like make culture happen or whatever it might be, or community or commerce or whatever, but those sort of things. And so technology is sort of a given. As soon as we started making, you know, taking a bit of bone and fashioning it into a knife, we've been involved in technology. So you can't, not, you can't be against it because to be against technology would be to be against people, actually, or humans, which I think is problematic. So the, it's the question that's important. Again, it goes back to, so So then what? So if you had taxes plus good UX, then what? And so what I'm thinking is, how does a city work? I don't know. Are you in Auckland or Wellington or like somewhere? Or, in Auckland. Yeah, so like yeah. in Auckland, then you'd say like, given taxes plus UX, <laughs> how is that going to help Auckland? Now, that's the kind of question there. Before you then just sort of say, well, one way of answering that question would just be to let Uber roll across it for 10 years. You know, I would say, no, we should be, we can see that coming. You know, like my, my career has been about being in roughly the right place at the right time, not through great foresight, but just by having a set of, you know, like it's a bit like going back to the football analogy. If you make the run into the box 20 times in a game, one of those times the ball is going to cross from the wing out roughly at the same time that you're going to be there. Uh, you, you miss the other 19 times you made that run and nothing happened, right? So if you, as long as you keep on looking and you keep on exploring and you, you know, you, you can see when I was at the BBC, we could see podcasting like about three days after someone wraps an XML around an MP3 file in America. Someone in my team at the BBC said, Oh, there's a thing called podcasting. Sorry, Matt, I'm doing a bad impression of your voice, but why don't we do that? Why don't we have a go at that on, um, Radio 4? On one of our least okay. popular shows, <laughs> and just and you were like, "Brilliant, let's do it." I was kind of like, Matt, I've got no idea what a podcast is. I kind of get it. You can subscribe to you. Can, we can make it so you can subscribe using XML to an audio file that will pop up automatically. That sounds kind of handy, but that's it. I mean, it's just again like two or three days after someone had just called it that, and I think we were the first broadcaster to do that in Europe for sure, and maybe the second in the world, I don't know. But it was, so that's an example of making a run into the box, I suppose, in my silly football analogy. I had no idea, really, what would then happen or what might unfold or that in 20 years' time, you know, I'd be talking to you on our podcast and podcasts have been massively important. You can't see that, but you can kind of see that this has the conditions of something that changes the game a bit. And I, I can't then make a prediction and say, this is radical and it's going to mean the end of the license fee and we're going to need like 15,000 new jobs. But I can see this is worth prototyping and testing and exploring and start small and start building it up and generate feedback loops and insight and watch it and carefully work with it. And then go big with it at some point. And you do have to talk people into it. I remember the show producers that we spoke to on that first show in our time were like, no idea what you're talking about, mate. I've got to make a show. Just get out of my hair. You know, and, and we're just like, just let us try it a little bit. Just let us have a little go. You know, and it's, it'll be fine. Isn't that curious, though? Because this is a, a, a state broadcaster. Yeah. And podcasts being, well, another essentially another vehicle for broadcast. That doesn't strike me as being that much of a long bow for them to be able to see that potential. But you're also touching on there what, what we've covered earlier in this conversation, which, which is this tension that can exist between the uh, financialization of the state service in this case Absolutely. and the state service's role in creating culture, which is essentially what podcasts are a vehicle for doing. Yeah, and technology changes um, the rules there, doesn't it? So like the BBC obviously mm -hmm. is based around the idea of a license fee paid by people in the UK to generate everything into life. And that made sense when broadcasting was a physically more obvious thing, as in it was geographically bound by transmitter towers and how far those signals could reach. It's a lot easier leaving aside the world service, which is a little anomaly, but a rather a hugely important contribution to democracy stroke, a little anomaly. But it's, um, it was, you know, our, our radio signals did leak into northern France. Occasionally would get like annoyed people in France saying that our radio signals were opening automatic garage doors and stuff in Normandy, which is kind of hilarious, <laughs> particularly when it's coming from a French person. But it's... Well, that was because that was, that was on purpose, right? That's <laughs> exactly. the English sense of humour, British sense of humour. For me, it was. And then, um, but then you could kind of say, well, 
that's the limit of who's paying for it. That's the limit of who receives it. Like, we don't have to think too hard about that. As soon as the podcast got out there and you started getting listeners in during our time from the middle of Iowa or Auckland, of course, then the show producers started going, this is great. We've got more amazing listeners. They love listeners, obviously. You know, that's their currency, if you like. That's their real currency, not dollars, pounds, listeners. And so I love that. But to get them to that point, You've got to bear in mind that they, you know, they might have grown up in the previous age. And for them, the internet is just sort of, you know, it's this new thing and it's going to take all of our jobs away and it's going to make our life harder. And it's going to mean lots of, you know, the, the significance of the BBC will be diminished under the weight of people like ultimately Netflix and others and so on. They, they can sort of, they know that comes with this breaking wave as well. Now, what I was saying was that, so that's why we need to be involved. We need to be the first into this game because we want to be exploring it. That's, that's part of our remit as, as the BBC. We've always explored new technologies and we've also explored new terms of culture. You know, that goes back to 1929 or whatever. And it also helps us understand what's coming. And then we're able to then position our ideas, which is, again, what they're interested in, in that much richer landscape, which will emerge. And it doesn't mean we don't do radio and TV in the traditional sense. It doesn't mean we're adding, 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 you know, and we kind of, that's much more powerful. But it is hard. You know, I remember, like, I'm old enough to remember, like, people saying, I had a, in a crowded room in Sydney once, Flickr is the death of photography, someone once said to me. And that people won't even know what Flickr is these days. It still exists. But it was like an, a popular photo sharing app. <laughs> I remember. Exactly. Who bought uh, it? Yahoo was it Yahoo? It. Yeah, exactly. And then they sold it. Yeah. But it was, it's still around. But can you imagine that? I mean, in a way, it's like saying Instagram is the death of photography. And yet, at the same time, there are probably more t- people taking photos than ever, I'd have thought. Almost, you know, exponentially more. Numbers of photos and people. What people aren't declaring when they say things like that is their own self-interest and preserving the status quo. Exactly. And of course, I would say if you're a professional photographer, you will be doing fine in this, in this age. You know, if you're doing things in a, if you're, if you're good at what you do, I think you'll be all right. And it's a kind of all boats rise on the tide kind of argument, which you should also, always be careful about that because I'm sure that's what, again, Airbnb would also say. I think that's when you have when you have a civic institution involved in that. That is part of our remit to make sure that it is all boats rising on the tide, actually. That we are, you know, training kids about images and photography and that they have a place to make art or culture one way or another that is not just financialized but can be something else. You know, that's that would be the BBC position on it. So let's use the technology. Let's go back to the Cedric's point, ask the deeper questions behind it. And then, and then start exploring and building. Same with, same with mobility, same with energy, same whatever. You know, those are also cultural things as much as they're technical. So I'm just trying, I'm trying to make this point, I suppose, that the, the, the designer who's working on the front end of the interface, you don't necessarily have to ask them to resolve all of this stuff. They can tell you a lot because like the, the guy, Matt Webb, who told me about the XML file is a genius, right? And he is partly a genius because he knows inside out the technical fabric of that medium as well as creative possibilities around it. And he was involved in making. And so he's a bit like the type designer I said earlier. He's also bigger than that. You can think outside of those things. But that's he gives you such amazing insight by being involved in that kind of making. My job at that, that point was less of a maker. You know, I did do that once. But now was, my job is then to think, hmm, okay, so organizationally, what does that mean? What's the bigger, how does that change what the BBC is about? And I need to work, I need to figure that out with my colleagues. Matt's also great in that conversation, FYI. But I think that's then kind of at the other end of that telescope. It's kind of saying, what's the BBC in that and an on-demand media age with user-generated content and pervasive media? That's a huge question. That changes what the organization is. Probably changes, certainly changes that license fee conversation because it's not about opening garage doors in Normandy anymore. It's about genuinely making the BBC relevant globally, you know. That then changes what our remit is. It changes what the government thinks we're for. It's a political question. I mean, it's it's it all comes from that tiny little, hey, why don't we chuck an XML file around this MP3? You can get from that, like one end of the telescope up to the other end of what is the BBC. You know, it's not that many steps. How much of the success of the BBC's transformation do you attribute to senior leadership's comfort or at least ability to be uncomfortable with asking questions that were new and novel and led to areas of 
inquiry that didn't necessarily have clear answers? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, I should be clear with someone I left the BBC in 2007, mm. so, so it's a long time ago now, but I was there 2000, 2001 to 2007, so kind of a formative time in those early internet ages-ish, or second wave of internet, actually. And I was one of a thousand people there, you know, like working in that area, and many more were more, more influential. I would have seen a lot more closely how senior leadership worked. I did work at senior leadership levels on a couple of big projects, Creative Futures was one, and one was called Beyond Broadcasting. One thing I did on those was actually did a sort of speculative design piece, it would be called now, which was made a, made a fake copy of The Economist magazine set in 2015. We did this in 2005, so it was like a 10-year punt into the future. And just uh, and I obsessively made it look like The Economist because I knew that the senior leaders, they choose to read The Economist yeah. <laughs> and they go and buy it. So it was like putting the ideas in a language that they were already drawn towards. Don't give them a PowerPoint or a Word doc. No one really wants to open those files, right? But if you make it the economist, they actually want they actually spend their money on that. So so we translated some of the strategic thinking that my colleagues have done and I've done a bit and then put that into this. I'll share it somewhere. I think it's it's on the internet somewhere now. Yeah, but, um, post it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting because it was so there's a good example of a senior leader. There was a guy called Richard Deverell who was running Children's BBC at the time, I think. And he he really opened the door for that. He really went with it. I think it, you know a lot of other people had said, "What are you doing? Like making a fake copy of the Economist? You know, just need to make a Word doc for the board to read. Can't you just do what you know told?" <laughs> but he completely saw the possibility in that, and was probably one proselytizing it more than I was ultimately with the board level. So very powerful individuals were like Richard, and I would say um, Mark Thompson, who then went on to run the New York Times, ex-BBC Director General, before him, Greg Dyke, uh, to some extent, but Jenny Abramsky on the radio side. You know, these are these are key people and senior figures that were often from a creative background or had come up through the programme-making side and then ended up being in charge one way or another. They were open and they were full of possibility. And that's been very difficult questions of people like me, which you need to, because it could be, true that the internet stuff is all baloney you know but we had so we had to like we had to really figure that out quite carefully in those early days it wasn't obvious this was post dot-com crash remember where you can imagine people would have been like yeah well that was that's over now let's go back to bbc version one but they actually triggered other things there like bbc 2.0 was a thing in 2004 internally and that was led by a few people i'd say they were slightly outnumbered <laughs> Um, as is often the case, I suppose, in many organizations, there were a lot of people that hadn't come up for the program making side that really didn't have that broader understanding of the cultural role of the BBC. So they're much more narrowly inclined towards financial and things like that. They were often blockers. And then there were people, as you said, that were the a bit like the photographer I mentioned that would just saw it as a hassle or they saw it as the end of broadcasting and therefore the end of the BBC, not able to kind of transition their thinking into some unknown future which is hard to do admittedly but they they weren't really even open to say well we do have some practices like design that can talk about things that aren't just here yet but can begin to put together a set of visions or ideas around that that you can kick the tires on you know that's that's a really that's the cult, cultural invention role of design that i was talking about earlier. you've used the word possibility again several times it's almost mm. as if what you're articulating is a tension that can exist within organizations, and again, potentially generalizing here, between people who see that possibility and people who are more conservatively minded and for whatever reason aren't able to or not are not comfortable with lifting mm. their, their gaze just a little bit higher and, and staring, mm. staring out of the window and, and pondering yeah. and wondering what things could be like. Yeah, I think that's very common. And, and to be clear as well, the, the handbrake is also a handy tool in a car. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, if you just had the accelerator pedal, obviously it would be a disaster. Maybe that's what Uber is. <laughs> but it's just, a, you know, it's like you need also that kind of friction because the, those people are asking smart questions. It's just that, you know, they, 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 they might just not be as positive about the other thing. And there might be some good reasons for that, right? So that's fair enough. And so, again, it's a bit like my football analogy. If you just have like 11 Mo Salas, 11 center forwards, it wouldn't be very handy. You also need a defender. So so you, you need that person that's going to ask the difficult questions. And sometimes you probably need a bit of the intransigent folk. And 
in in transition theory, there's there's this kind of there's this the re, this sort of regime actors and these sort of niche or emergent actors, and they both exist in any large organization or small organization, whatever it might be, or a culture more broadly or a sector. So you might see the the regime who's currently in charge, and that's just and I'll pick cars again current car manufacturers. And then you see some niches emerging around that, obviously. And those niches are everything from alternatives to the car completely, like e-bikes and cargo bikes, to car sharing, different ways of making cars happen without you having to own a private car. Uh, I suppose electric vehicles, if we're just joining transmission, they're a niche. And over time, the niche becomes a regime and the regime falls away. But some actors can jump from regime to niche. And they're interesting. So, because you want the link between the existing capability and the capacity, and they've probably also got all the capital, remember, and the new world, which is also emerging alongside. And so, this is what's called a transition theory. It's not a revolution where it's just like, okay, that lot's all dead. Now there's lots alive. But it's it's actually a transition from one state to another. Some people do fall away and they just retire or it's fine. You know, they just go out of business, also fine, I guess. And then some this niche emerges. And then, sort, of course, it, at some point will be challenged by a new niche that's beginning to emerge. So within organizations, it's like that too. And I suppose I'm, I'm always trying to balance my own, I suppose, instincts to be in the niches and find these kind of, okay, this is the emerging area. This is the new thing that's coming. And, you know, I'm, drawn towards that and I'm quite good at starting things up I guess but I really also recognize the value in people that can maintain and uh, my teams at the BBC I suppose my teams at Arup as well have gone through those kinds of phases where my first team at the BBC was very much starting things up you know we're kind of we're, we're, we're building a whole bunch of new stuff here second team was more like this is then continuing and spreading you know which was a different instinct and a different culture I think probably around that time, I, I also felt I can probably move on here, actually, because my work is done in this first phase, like move, getting it going, putting something in place, then shifting that first thing into this second mode, which is then now rolling. I'm probably less, less useful at this point. I think in Sweden, I just sort of hit that mode as well after three and a half years there, mm -hmm. setting up the projects I did. They're just rolling now. And that's great. I'm really happy that they roll and spread and they kind of relationally spread sideways. I don't need to do those sort of hard yards in the early days. There's other hard yards to do now for other people. Yeah. It's almost like there's a different type or nature of the work that's being done and also in different cadence or type of person that suits a different cadence of, of change. Um, safe yeah. pair of hands to, to roll it out, but it's not necessarily the same person to con conceive of it. Now you talked about hard, so. yeah. yeah, you talked about hard questions, and and well, I'm thinking that this might be a hard question, but I'll, I'll soon find out once I ask you of it. <laughs> which is that there is this tension in our cities as we are starting to remove things like lanes for cars, replace them with cycle lanes, adding in transit lanes for buses, uh, putting in more um, green space and what was, you know, high street back in the day mm. and, you know, in implementing congestion charges, this sort of change that is happening to our cities. Uh, and as a result, what we're seeing is a reduction in car parking and you've talked about the the job of the city is to look at transport as a whole and not necessarily yeah. just through the lens of, say, one particular mode or player. But there is a perception that the changes to the cities are being driven by a select group of unelected elite ideologues who are really seeking to serve the needs of a privileged few. Mm. Do people have reason to believe this? Do they have a real reason to be grumpy about the removal of car parking and the implementation of things like bus lanes and cycle lanes? I guess it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a complex question the way you framed it because it depends on do you think people should be grumpy if they were told one thing very, very strongly and then they were told another thing? <laughs> so it, are they... Over time. Are they allowed to be, yeah, exactly. Are they yeah. allowed to be grumpy in that instance? And I guess I would say, yeah, they probably are allowed because, like, imagine if, you know, like, a, I don't know, it's one of your kids or if you've got kids or it's a colleague or whatever, you said, okay, this is 100% the way we're going. And then at some point you go, actually, that was a bit wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna have to go the other way now. Yeah. And then someone might, Sorry about you know, that. so that, exactly, bugger. You know, so that, that then depends on the way you do it, I guess, the way you have that conversation. Like if you're, again, with your colleague or your kids or your family members and you're saying, 
I'm all about this. I'm really strident about it. And then now I'm equally stridently in this direction. Then immediately someone will be like, hang on a minute. What did, you know, what did you, what are you doing? <laughs> you just, you've just gone 180. What do you believe? And, you know, what's right? And why should I, why should I go with you? You know, because if you're saying it was all like this a minute ago, I think that's all we've done here. I say all we've done because that is a big complex thing for us to unpick now. But, you know, cities um, for two generations ago didn't really have cars in them. Not that long ago, maybe three, but it's really 1930s onwards, right? So, you know, my, my dad was born in 1938. So he's one generation ahead of me. So I'm a, I'm, let's argue two, I don't know. But, you know, it's kind of that. Whereas streets in places, well, in the West anyway, I'll just talk about the West. Uh, that's where I grew up. They've been around for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, multiple generations without cars. So I've, I visited uh, Farnham when I was in the UK briefly. And just to give people some context, if they haven't strolled a European street before or a British street in this case, mm. the cobbles on the streets have been trod on so many times that you can see the collective grooves that thousand a thousand yeah. years of history represent. And there's something yeah. absolutely intangible, beautiful and priceless in seeing the residual effect of lives being lived in a in an urban absolutely. environment. No, it's beautifully put, and it, and it has that story to it, and that story is all around us, you know, in, in the non-Western world or the South or the East. I mean, obviously, they, we've also had streets for a very long time, a bit of Kyoto, or even the, if we hadn't, if the British hadn't destroyed them all, there would have been equivalent in Australia and New Zealand. Not as we understand them now, but absolutely, obviously, um, communities coming together in places at scale, thousands of people coming together with thoroughfares through them. I mean, so that's what humans have done for a long time, obviously. So there's only so last someone getting at the last generation maybe two we've taken all that aside and said we're going to take those places which were previously places of exchange and conversation and culture and conviviality and kids playing and you know as well as commerce and moving horses through it all kinds of stuff look at any film of a city from 1920 and you'll see what it was like you know really beautiful kind of what Jane Jacobs called the ballet of the street unfolding in front of you. And then for two generations, we said, okay, now it's all about traffic. <laughs> and we're just going to slide all of that out of the way. And we're going to make it built around the car instead. And the car's the main thing. And we're going to put traffic engineers in part in charge of that. So it's super reductive. So that's what we told people at scale. And we repeatedly, repeatedly hammered that into people's heads by massive infrastructure programs, you know, road building at enormous scale, um, adverts, every bit of media you can imagine, TV, like newspapers, just the whole lot, all creating that vision. And so that's what I'm getting at. We have done that and now we have to go the other way. So how we do that is the question for me, not whether it's fair or not, or like, you know, it's just actually, it's more just if we go the other way, actually. You know, we want to talk about social equity and so on. There's many, many people, many, many more people will find it more affordable, healthier, the environment will be better. You know, the outcomes for everybody are going to be much better if we go the other way. So we have to get through that transition somehow. And that's the, that's the tricky thing. Like, how do we do that? It's not whether we do it or not. We don't really have an option, actually, because what you can see, like right now in Australia, New South Wales is basically underwater at this point as a result of the kind of mechanism in that plan A. So we have to go to this plan B somehow. And that those floods and fires, as you know, they don't really care who they burn down or flood. It's just, you know, the constraints of change. Right. Yeah. 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 There's also a degree of trust, though, that you're asking for and yeah. you and your contemporaries are asking for here from the public to believe mm. that and i'm not going to call it a siren song but you're you're mm. alleging that the previous generations of planners uh, for lack of a better word of our urban environments were selling a siren song maybe without full knowledge of what its consequences would be for the planet and yeah. you've talked about the other way we need to go the other way now so there is a there is a degree of trust that's being asked for. And you've said something that's really interesting in one of your talks, probably you've echoed it many times, and I'll just quote you here. You said, mm. we don't make cities in order to make buildings. We don't make mm. cities to make infrastructure. We don't make cities to make traffic. We don't make cities to make data. So in, in terms of addressing that trust aspect of what I was touching upon there, why do we make cities? Uh I would say culture. At the end of the day, again, I know that sort of goes back to my person in a cave painting. 
But I think what, what humans make is culture at the end of the day. And we, you know, we, we wrap mechanisms around that to enable it, like businesses or art galleries, you know, but I think that's what we're doing often. Um, we use technology to do that. That's the, the tools that we make to produce culture. And culture, to be clear, I, I really, it's a complex word. You know, it's one of the most complex words, but I mean it in a couple of senses. One is the act of definitely making culture. So you're making a podcast. You know, it's kind of, Brian, you know, I think once said, you know, art is everything that we don't have to do. <laughs> so you don't have to make this podcast, right? But, you know, you want to. And so it's it's great that you do. And that, but that's a, that's a drive within you to, to do this one way or another. Numerous reasons why, no doubt. Same with someone doing painting or whatever. So it's, there's that, that there's that end of culture, and the other end is culture as in the way we live and work together. You know, our everyday culture, the culture of a community, and so on. So that's what I mean when I say culture. I and mean, both of those, and they're, they're kind of glued together, I think actually. Um, and again, particularly if you go back to sort of back or forward to indigenous thinking around this, it's kind of um, the, the same thing. The, the art that you make is based on the community that you are, and vice versa. So I think that's what people do generally. So that applies to cities. We make cities to come together. Because it's a really good way of making culture, you know, sort of it's, it's, it's kind of a mechanism for that. It also makes business, it makes lots of other things as well. So you could, it makes community, it makes conviviality, it brings people together. You know, that, those are the reasons we make cities. The other stuff that you listed in my quote, there are the enablers of those things, a bit like the technology, I would say. Building is a technology that enables us to make community or culture or commerce, you know. So if you want to have a business, you probably need a building of some kind. You might own multiple buildings, right? But but you don't make the business to make the building, usually. You make the business to make the business, which is, again, the broader sense I'm talking about. And you need electricity, you might need some water, and so on and so on and so on. But you probably need some mobility to get, a, you know, to enable things to happen one way or another, either to get to the building or to whatever it might be, or to get your thing out of the building. Again, but that's not the point of the business. It's not why you started a podcast, right? So... You know, going back to that, the the accident I think we made was you took this super technical reductive view and we put a little bit the plumbers in charge of the enterprise. And I don't mean to be denigrating about pot plumbers because as you heard me say earlier, they actually solve problems. <laughs> Just try going yeah. a week without a toilet and you'll know all, well, exactly. all about the value of a plumber. Exactly. So this is the funny thing. Infrastructure is fundamentally important, but it's mm. not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is the other stuff, the culture, the infrastructure is 100% important. And so we have to find this kind of weird balancing act. So the, the mistake we made was to probably, if I just put it simply, we just said we, we let traffic engineers run the streets. And I'd argue the streets are our key public spaces. And a public space is more than just has it got a thousand cars per hour going down it without killing anybody, you know, which is sort of variables traffic engineers look at. So in another quote, I said, you know, if you put a gardener in charge of the street, you get gardens, right? You put traffic engineers in charge of the street, you get traffic. It's like the clue is in the name. You put plumbers in charge of the street, you get really good waterworks. <laughs> I think what <laughs> you're getting at here is you're not really advocating for city planners or gardeners or plumbers to be in charge. You're more encouraging us to think about well, what do we actually want from our streets. Exactly. So if you step back to that Cedric Price question, what is a street? What is a street? Like I said, what is a library? You know, what is a what is a phone? You know, I worked mm. on a project where we looked at just what a phone is. Very interesting. So it, that that kind of phone-ness, I used to call it, or library-ness, or street-ness. Like, what is it that makes it a street? And I'd say, it's a street. We're talking about a public space. You know, it's different to a road. It's different to a freeway. A street is a place where we come together. And it's got a bunch of jobs to do, for sure. Um, but it's, they're an interesting, diverse bunch of jobs. So as a result, you need an interesting, diverse bunch of people in charge of what that is. It can't just be one discipline. And so the previous era, let's say 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that golden age of road building was because we kind of put one discipline in charge of something which is actually incredibly complex and diverse. So as a result, it goes wrong. As a result, we get people then annoyed. And so the way forward isn't for me, okay, just find the much smarter person and do exactly the same process. That would be like, a, you know, most smart city projects, for instance, is a bad example of what to do. It's actually to then say, well, we have to then figure it out as a community, a community of stakeholders and people and owners locally, like the people who live in the street, work in the street, play in the street, and supported by expertise, but a diverse group of experts. We can then figure out what the next steps are. 
So I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do a drawing of what I think a future street looks like. I could do, but it's like, it doesn't really matter. It's just my thought. What's important is how that street itself evolves into the future in this more diverse way and who we bring around that discussion. And that's incredibly interesting and rich. And I think optimistic because then it's not me telling you that your car is bad and you should be riding a bike, even though I secretly think that. It's like, I, it's not, it doesn't help. You know, it's got to be you coming forward with your car and your bike and with your mates and your neighbors and then supported by people like me and others, but a very diverse crew, people the opposite of me as well, hopefully. And together we can figure out what the way that would be markedly different to how it was done in the previous kind of plan A mode. Dan, I'm captivated by the possibility of that approach. (laughs) I'm also mindful of time. And while we could wax lyrical, about what sounds like a very Star Trek, the next generation future. And I ideally hope we get there. We probably should bring things down to a close. So Dan, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed this conversation. It's been challenging, but in a really good way. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time to share your stories and insights with me today. Uh, thanks, Brendan. I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry if I rattled on a bit, but you opened, you, you gave such good, big questions that um, it was really nice to talk to you about them all. And it always helps me process my own thinking about it when people ask good questions like that. So thank you. Oh, you're most welcome and definitely could have got another 90 minutes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. Extra time. <laughs> hey, Dan, if people want to find out more about you and all the wonderful work that you've put out into the world, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, if you Google Downhill City of Sound, you'll find numerous ways. Perfect. So try that. All right. Thanks, Dan. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Dan, City of Sound, and all the other great things we've spoken about. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to find more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review, subscribe to the show, and also pass it along to someone else who would enjoy these conversations about design at depth. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis, or you can find a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes as well on YouTube, or just head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey.